So I think actually grace is the fuel for self-control. It's not the opposite of it. It's actually what empowers us to live a healthy, holy life. Welcome to the 30 Second Book Club podcast, a place for people who want to read more books and be in a book club, but don't really have time to do either. I do it for you. My name is Andy. Really, uh, this one hit home for me and maybe it will for you as well. If you struggle with self-control, this is the book for you. It's called Your Future Self Will Thank You, Secrets of Self-Control from the Bible and Brain Science. Drew Dyke is the author. Drew, what inspired you to write this book? I wish I could say that it was just something I was drawn to out of academic interest, the topic of self-control. But the truth is, uh, this was an area in my life in which I realized I needed to grow. And so initially, I was reading up on what the Bible had to say about self-control, looking to at the literature, the academic literature on self-regulation and habits and willpower. Uh, And it wasn't until like a few books in that I realized, hey, maybe there's something here uh, that could be helpful to a wider audience. And so it kind of morphed into this book project. And my hope is that that what I learned can be as helpful to others as it was to me. From the biblical standpoint, I, I never realized this, but the New Testament uses four different words talking about self control. That's right. Yeah. And they all kind of provide a a slightly different shade of meaning. Uh, I kind of condensed that into a definition that self-control is doing the right thing, even when you don't feel like doing it. And the thing that that the scriptures bring to light, which is so important when it comes to this topic, is that self-control, this is counterintuitive, but it's not something you can do by yourself. That is, you can't just kind of grit your teeth, pull yourself up by your bootstraps and develop self-discipline, at least from a Christian perspective. Galatians 5 calls it a fruit of the spirit. So in other words, this is something that you need to be connected to God in order to see grow in your life. So that's a key part of this topic is that we need the empowerment of God's spirit. If we're going to live a life of self-control, we cannot do it by ourselves. Doesn't that also, I feel like that also kind of, not, not that it lets us off the hook, but you know, when you feel like you're failing on your own, it's because you can't do it on your own, right? <laughs> There's something <laughs> right. freeing about that. Yeah, you weren't meant to do it on your own. Uh, you need divine empowerment, and you also need people to come alongside you and to keep you accountable and to inspire you and encourage you and to share their struggles. That's a crucial part of this as well. Uh, part of what I looked at was a few of the really popular recovery programs like Alcoholics Anonymous. And the secret sauce of all of those programs, of course, is the community. You know, if they, if they kind of say, you know what, I've got this addiction uh, conquered, I can do this by myself, you know that's a person who's very vulnerable to a relapse. Uh, they don't do that. They admit their weakness and they regularly gather with fellow strugglers to conquer their vices. And no matter what we're addicted to, no matter what bad habit or besetting sin that you have, If you want to be serious about it, you have to be vigilant and you have to engage in community. And I would say as a believer, you have to be connected to God, asking for his empowerment and cooperating with his work in your life if you want to make progress. And you talk about this. There's this idea of sanctified goals and how we're good at compartmentalizing life into sacred and secular categories. And I think that's part of it. You're thinking, oh, you know, I'm, I want to eat better. I want to exercise more. Those don't have anything to do with spirituality. But, I mean, you argue that, yes, it does. And, uh, you know, if we don't do that, we're, we could live like a functional atheist. That's right. Yeah, which we don't want to do just from a, st- a spiritual standpoint. But I was fascinated to read about sanctified goals. This isn't like a Christian concept. This is from secular research where they look at this idea that when people 
conceive of the goals they have, even if they're sort of mundane goals, like dropping a few pounds, getting healthier, being more productive, things like that. If they connect a spiritual significance to those goals, they have a greater um, rate of success at accomplishing them. And I thought that was interesting. So for instance, if your goal is to lose some weight, you can motivate yourself by saying, I want to fit into those old jeans or I want to look better in the mirror. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's fine. But we know from the research that if you tie a spiritual significance to that goal, so say you say, I want to have more energy to pursue the, the call that God has placed on my life, or I know that my body is the is a temple of the Holy Spirit, according to scripture, and I want to honor God in the way I treat my body, you will actually be more successful in, in pursuing and realizing those health goals. So that was, that was important to me because sometimes I'm like, okay, well, if I got a spiritual goal, like reading my Bible, that I can think of in spiritual terms, but the other stuff I just got to do on my own. This was an encouragement for me. No matter what the goal is, I need to bring it to God. I need to think of it in spiritual terms, and that will actually help me. And you talk about, you know, growing your spiritual muscles as well. And, you know, the great example of Peter, <laughs> big mouth in the Bible. And, and how, what did you learn from kind of going back and looking at his story? Isn't that true? Yeah, he was kind of a mouth first kind of guy. Um, and rereading the story of Peter, which I was very familiar with, after doing some of the research on self-control, I started to realize, man, Peter's essential problem, I think, was that he just kind of had a classic case of low self-control because here's this guy, you know, he was always saying what he was going to do. He was, he was trying to do great things, including walking on water like Jesus. Uh, before Jesus uh, dies, he says to, to Jesus, you know, even though everyone else betrays you, I will never betray you. I will die with you. And of course, then that very night, he betrays him three times. Um, so yeah, Peter had these high aspirations. Uh, he was the first to articulate the true identity of Jesus, these great things, what he lacked was the ability to follow through on them. But the encouraging thing about the story of Peter, as you know, if you've read scripture, is that Peter changed, right? Um, and a lot of that change, I think, happened after the events that we read about in the Gospels, because when we catch up to him 15, 20 years later, when he's writing his, his epistles to the early church, he's this pillar of the church. He's writing these warm fatherly, affectionate letters to the believers under his care, urging them to grow in godliness. And when I see that, I go, man, that's awesome. Peter finally became the rock that Jesus saw in this faltering fisherman. And the, the lesson there for me, it's an encouragement because I go, man, if Peter changed, I can change too. I just have to keep walking with Jesus, trusting him to change me and I can change. What do habits have to do with self-control? Well, quite a bit. So um, one of the big aha moments for me early on researching this topic was looking at the literature on willpower. Now, willpower is just the emotional uh, energy that you need to resist temptation or do something difficult. Uh, and the problem with willpower, as study after study has demonstrated, is that it is a finite resource. It runs out. We might like to think that we can hold off forever, you know, resisting temptation, or we can do something difficult indefinitely. But the truth is we get weaker as we go because our willpower is limited and it depletes quickly. The great thing about habits, at least healthy habits, is that when you're doing a habit, which is just an unconscious routine, you're not using willpower. You're not expending that precious finite commodity that we call willpower. So if you can institute good, healthy habits into your life, you can do a lot of good things kind of on autopilot. So for instance, you know, the person who wakes up in the morning and goes and runs 10 miles, <laughs> that's not me, by the way, but the person who does they're not psyching themselves up, looking in the mirror, going, okay, I got to do it. I just got to do it. And it's like a big struggle. 
it's a habit at that point, right? A lot of things are like this. And so if we can, I think a lot of the people that have kind of reached a level of spiritual maturity where they just, you know, turn to God instantly uh, and pray when they encounter any sort of difficulty or confusion or people who wake up and flip open their Bible in the morning and spend time in God's word, they have instituted that as a habit in their life. So it's not, you know, consciously gritting it out, relying on willpower every time. And as I read about how powerful habits are in shaping our behavior, so like according to one study, 42% of all of our behaviors throughout a day are just habit. Um, So if you can institute those good habits, that's a huge part of developing self-control. And you have a great example. Uh, If you want to have, you know, you look at Billy Graham and you just see the life he lived and he had an incredible spiritual habit that you share at the end of that chapter too. That's right. That came from a, a journalist that was interviewing him. And, uh, you know, he was he was asking Graham some questions. And in his typical uh, humble fashion, he kind of shot down a few of them, uh, including like, are you kind of like the Pope for Protestant Christians? <laughs> and he says, oh, no, no, no. Um, but he said the one thing that he was able to do is pray without ceasing. And the journalist was kind of confused. He's like, what do you mean pray without ceasing? Like you pray all the time. And Graham was like, well, I, I, I think I do. And he said, I'm praying right now as we speak, you know, so it, it's just interesting because he, um, he just had this habit of continual communion with God and he wasn't saying it in a sort of braggadocious manner, but it was just something that was so integral to his spiritual life that it was as natural as breathing. Same with scripture. And the journalist noted this too. He, he talked about his habit of just constantly being in the word. And as they were talking, he looked over Graham's shoulder and could see his open Bible on the table there. Um, and, and I think that's, some people might think, well, if you use a habit to, to start reading the Bible or praying or serving people, isn't that kind of cheating? Well, maybe, but the truth is God made us habitual creatures. And I think that's why there's so much repetition that you see in the Bible and in the life of the church and in the spiritual life, we're supposed to stitch these things into the fabric of our lives. And so that we don't have to just rely on our limited willpower. And as we know, we have a sinful nature. So often if we're just left to our own devices, we're going to choose sin and selfishness. But if you have those good habits that you, that you've um, created in your life, that can really, really help. I think as a Christian, sometimes we can under-spiritualize things sometimes as a Christian, and then sometimes we can over-spiritualize things. And you talk about this in the chapter where, you know, you say, you know, grace means I don't need self-control and other dumb things that Christians think. (laughs) It's like, ah, you know, I can have another donut. There's grace. We're good. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Yeah. And it's interesting too, because some people say, well, like, is, you know, every time you don't demonstrate self-control, is that a sin? And I mean, not really. I mean, here's the thing. Like if you, if you pick, um, uh, you know, someone offers you a cookie or kale and you pick the cookie, I don't think that means you're, you're in committing some grave sin. It's just your taste buds are working properly. Um, <laughs> so that's fine. Now, of course, th- there's that blurry line, right? Where certain behaviors become sinful because if you eat a whole like carton of cookies, which I'm ashamed to say that I've done, uh, then you're, you're flirting with gluttony. Um, and so, and then there are just a lot of behaviors that, that, in and of themselves maybe aren't sinful, but they're not wise. And ultimately they can be harmful to us. Um, And then when you're right, when it comes to the grace question, I think a lot of people, they may not articulate this exactly, but we have this tendency to think, well, 
grace, that is God's forgiveness and unmerited favor. Uh, well, why would I struggle to develop self-control and live a holy life if God is just going to forgive me every time I mess up anyway? <laughs> and the truth is, the Apostle Paul in the Bible anticipates this sort of thinking. He says, should we go on sinning that grace may increase? And his answer was unequivocal. He said, by no means, or heaven forbid, you know, depending on your translation. Um, one of the studies that was so fascinating to me was reading, it was actually from diet researchers, and they observed this phenomenon they called the what the heck effect. And essentially what this was, they saw that when people that were on a diet had one small indiscretion, say it was like eating just a piece of chocolate or a slice of pizza, what would follow that indiscretion was often a full on binge. Because they said, what the heck? I've already messed up the diet anyway. Now I'm just going to go crazy. Uh, and then they saw kind of the opposite phenomenon, which was um, the fresh start effect. That's what they called it. And it was sort of this, this, um, this phenomenon where people, when they perceive that they have a blank slate, that they're starting fresh, they're starting from scratch, their behavior actually improves. And as a Christian, I thought that was so interesting because I thought, man, as a believer, we have the ultimate fresh start effect, not just when it comes to dieting or you know eating, but we are adopted into God's family. We're forgiven entirely. And what should flow from that, and I think what does just naturally psychologically result from that is a desire not to go on sinning, but to actually obey God, to exercise self-control, to live a life of holiness. So I think actually grace is the fuel for self-control. It's not the opposite of it. It's actually what empowers us to live a healthy, holy life. Um, and incidentally, the answer to reforming your behavior uh, isn't just, just to wallow in guilt. That, that just fuels more bad behavior. The answer is always to keep diving back into grace. All right. Uh, I think uh, the very end of the book is so powerful, too, because, you know, how do we— um, find self-control in a digital era. You know, we're living in the age of distraction. And you, you give a few separate tips about how to do that. I, I'm, I think, uh, we'll start here. Which one do you say, okay, if, you know, our lives are so busy and so crazy, where should we start? What's the, what's the number one tip on how to get some more self-control in this digital era? Yeah. So a huge issue. And incidentally, one that is kind of unique to our time. Uh, you know, our, uh, you know, even 20, 30 years ago, people didn't have to deal with the temptation of scrolling endlessly online or binging Netflix. Or, you yeah. know, I mean, uh, obviously every, every era had their own uh, temptations and issues, but these are unique to our time. Um, and if you're not careful, if you don't do something to limit technology's influence in your life, not only does it usher in a lot of temptations, you think of anything from consumerism to lust to whatever, it's literally at your fingertips now. Uh, but then aside from that, it's just a huge time waster. It can be anyway. And it has this kind of effect on your brain of just distracting you and making you discontent. So I think the first kind of simple thing that I, I recommend doing is to employ what researchers call a bright lines strategy. And this is just very simple. All it means is you know, create some bright lines in your life around tech use. So it, it may look something like this, and this is just off the top of my head, but you may say, I'm not going to look on my phone, be on my phone past 7 p.m., right? Or uh, my family has institute, instituted something, albeit imperfectly, um, but what we call um, no screen Sunday. <clears throat> and it's just what it sounds like. Basically, okay, kids, 
no watching cartoons on Sunday. Dad can't be on his phone. Uh, we're just going to spend time as a family, maybe going for a walk, just sitting across the table from each other, looking each other in the eyes. And yeah, like we don't do it all the time. Usually I'm the one who breaks it, uh, breaks down and, and violates it most. Um, but the truth is when we do, it is like a little slice of heaven because, you know, people aren't distracted by these screens and you get a little bit of a break from the constant technological inundation that's part of modern life. Uh, so things like that. And that can work with food. You know, people talk about, man, if you've got a weakness for ice cream, which I do, uh, don't have it in your freezer. Just make a rule. Maybe you can eat it when you go to a restaurant or to a friend's house. But maybe your bright lines is, I'm going to get that out of my fridge. <laughs> and often, you know, it's just the, the options that we have immediately before us that actually inform a lot of our behavior. So a bright line strategy is something that's huge, especially when it comes to tech. You don't have to be everything. You just have to be you and live like you mean it. That can be really tough in this. Everything is supposed to look perfect on social media and you're supposed to be able to have it all and do it all. Well, Melissa Camara Wilkins wrote about this and her journey to just be who she was made to be and let go of the rest. It's called Permission Granted. She's in the 30 Second Book Club podcast next week.